Hey, Dan. What up, guy? You're into this fintech. What's all this I'm hearing about Current? You're going to like this guy. Current is a fintech company that's completely disrupting traditional banking. Wait a second. Does that mean I don't have to drive to the bank anymore? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I manage an important part of my family's finances from one easy-to-use app. Well, I got to get this app, but where can I learn more? It's super easy. Just go to Current.com slash OK, O-K-A-Y, and download the app. That's Current.com slash OK. Current is a financial technology company, not a bank. Banking services provided by Choice Financial Group, member FDIC, and Cross River Bank, member FDIC. Welcome to OK Computer. I am Dan Nathan. I am joined by CNBC's Tech Check host. That would be Deirdre Bosa. You also know her as Debo. Debo, welcome back. Hello. I missed you last week, so I'm glad to be back. <laughs> exactly. We covered a lot. We actually have a lot to cover today. We're going to be joined by Rick Heitzman of First Mark Capital. We're going to talk about some private market valuation moves. We're going to talk about a big deal in the public markets. That would be the UFC and the WWE's merger. That would be instigated by Endeavor. We also have a great conversation. I sat down with Kai C. He is the co-founder and managing partner of Structural Capital. We talk about just the FVB collapse and what it means for the private debt market. So there's a lot to chew on there. But let's you and I get into it a little bit. We're recording this on Tuesday afternoon. The S&P closed up more than 7% in Q1 of this year. The NASDAQ closed up about 16.5% or so, the NASDAQ 100, which we know 45% of that or so is the top six names, closed up more than 20%. D, the rally in the markets got really narrow. There's a lot of stats out there how the top 20 stocks in the S&P 500 gained $2 trillion of market cap in the first quarter of this year, where the bottom 480 gained, I think, about $200 billion or so. And you do that math and you say to yourself, man, investors are just crowding into the names that they know and love. Does that make you a bit nervous? I know you talk to a lot of folks in the media. I know you talk to a lot of operators at public and private companies, a lot of VCs. Is this narrowing of the market performance, is it something we should worry about? Especially when I think a lot of us feel like we are not out of the woods of whatever happened last year, despite the fact that rates have come in. And we know that, that was one of the big impetuses in late 2021 as the Fed switched gears to battle inflation, why we saw the deflation in multiples. But come on, man, this seems a little dangerous to me right here. Big tech's back, right, baby? <laughs> this move has been concentrated in five names, the mega caps that led the market up for the last decade. Yes, probably investors should be nervous because more rides on them, but they're also higher because investors are nervous. It's this sort of cycle where you want the fortress balance sheets of Microsoft, of Apple, of Meta, less so Amazon. They're grouped in this and not quite as profitable, but seems to be the safe haven. And we talked about this with Dan Ives, this sort of bizarre world where you have to start looking at revenue growth and it might actually disappoint, but at least your money is safe and they have these balance sheets where you know nothing's going to go wrong. So the effect of that is more concentration. Apple has a bad quarter. So goes the market. That's interesting. And that was a great conversation with Dan Ives. And when you think when I start hearing analysts, strategists kind of point towards revenue growth, so that would be growth at a reasonable price. I look at a company like NVIDIA, where its stock is up 90% on the year. It's up more than that off of its recent lows. And this is not a small company anymore, people. This is nearly a $650 billion market cap company trading at 61 times earnings that are expected to grow 30%. But as a multiple of sales that are expected to grow, let's call it like low teens or so, 22 and a half times sales. Those are really big numbers. And in most markets where valuation is a concern, your antennas would be up. And to your point about the mega caps and the monopolies and the balance sheets and the managements and the like, Apple is up 28% of the year. Alphabet's up 18%. Amazon's up 23%. Your meta that you just mentioned is up 78%. Microsoft's up 20%. The SMH, the ETF that tracks the semiconductor sector, and again, NVIDIA is a big part of that, is up about 28%. I guess the question that I have for you is that unless these companies are immune to an economic slowdown, there is plenty of risk there in that concentration, especially when this small group is doing most of the heavy lifting for the broad market, which was also a case into the highs of the NASDAQ in the late 2021. And I guess it all comes down to how you think the rest of this year is going to play out. Part of the reason that tech as a whole has been doing better as well, never mind 
the biggest five names, but tech as a whole has been doing pretty well. Even the really unprofitable ones has to do with the Federal Reserve and where you think interest rates are heading. So if you think we've bottomed out, if you think that it's going to pause, the Fed is going to pause sometime soon or even start cutting, the future earnings for these companies, especially the unprofitable ones, start to look a little more appealing. I went for good measure, Dan, and was just checking while you were talking at a Carvana. To me, a Carvana is like an indication of everything, <laughs> everything to do with FOMO in the market and speculation. And it's still up 96% year to date. So it's the biggest of the big and the really, really small that got beaten down last year are catching a bid in this environment. A lot could knock it off that perch. Certainly, we've been here before. That's actually what got SVB in trouble. The CEO said that the Fed was going to pause hiking interest rates, and that's not what happened. There is certainly a lot of risk. But at this point, when people are searching for trades, tech is getting it. Yeah. And we have to think about the banking sector. You just mentioned SVB and we had that great pod a few weeks ago in the throes of the SVB meltdown. And then the, some of the fears were moving to some other regionals like First Republic. And we had Jeff Richards on. We had Rick, who's going to join us in a second, also here. And it's just interesting that Jamie Dimon, who's the CEO of obviously the largest bank on the planet, he's out with his kind of annual letter. This is like this big manifesto. You it, you love it. It's widely followed in our industry. But I think there's a lot of implications if you think about the technology ecosystem. You have to assume that Jamie Dimon had the opportunity to buy Silicon Valley Bank in some way, shape, or form. And I think there was a lot of really smart voices out there saying that this is better off dealt within the regionals. We don't want these money centers to just gobble all of the regionals up. And we're going to have that much more of a concentration within our banking system, which ends up being unhealthy. But in this manifesto, he made a comment that's getting some run today. The banking crisis has provided lots of jitters in the market and will clearly cause some tightening of financial conditions as banks and other lenders become more conservative. It is unclear, he said, if it will slow the still strong consumer spending. And I think this really is where I want to go with this commentary. If you were in this tech ecosystem, if you were a VC-backed technology company private and you had all of your deposits at SVB, why? Because because all of the other services that they're offering to you, maybe it's some private debt, maybe it's credit lines, there's a whole host of other things. You just had this kind of near extinction event or so, right? And if any trepidation that you had about the economy, right, whether we're going to go into a recession or not, and you're thinking about further cost cuts, whether they be in CapEx or whether they be slowing hiring or actually firing people, don't you think, Debo, that like this would just heighten those sorts of senses where you would be pulling back on spending, especially given the uncertainty. And then if you look around and you see these other regional banks, you know, the KRE, which is the KBW Regional Bank Index, is making new lows right now. So to Jamie Dimon's point, this crisis feels far from over. If you are a startup and you know that you need to raise money sometime in the next few months or next year even, and you're looking at what's happening at the regionals, which would really the only banks that would serve you, right? You're not getting a line of credit very easily on no revenue, no profits from a JP Morgan, then you are going to think, how do I conserve the money I have for a little longer until maybe we're out of this? But you're right, Dan, and that itself causes some softness if they're not spending. Part of that letter too, Jamie Dimon talked about their own enterprise spending and cloud spending in particular, because you always wonder what the total addressable market is for the big enterprise cloud companies. And he came out and said, listen, we've spent $2 billion on new infrastructure, cloud-based infrastructure. 50% of applications are on the cloud. So they do have a lot more to go. And you have to wonder if, what other positions other companies are, other banks are in terms of their spending. It all goes together. But you're right. If you're a smaller company serving that ecosystem, you're looking at a tougher financing environment in the wake of SVB and what's happening at the other regionals. All right. Rick Heitzman's here. First Mark Capital. All right, Rick, we just had this little conversation about the eye of the storm of the SVB crisis here a little bit. We we're talking about what Jamie Dimon has had to say. He seems a bit cautious here. And I think that you and I have talked offline a little bit. I think the fact that we didn't see a major money center come in and bail out any of these regional banks, they did offer some deposits and basically give a little confidence in their ability for these banks to weather the storm. But we we're talking about the price action by many of those that have basically considered to be similar sorts of exposures to this kind of mismatch duration risk. And even with rates coming in, the equity trades very poorly. The equity of a lot of these banks act like they're basically going to be take-unders. So I'm just curious now, you've had a few weeks to reflect here. Most of your portfolio companies really probably navigated 
navigated the situation very well with the advice of you and many of your peers in the VC space. Where are we right now? Do you guys feel like the crisis is in the rearview mirror here, or are we going to be exposed to other kind of banking issues as the kind of year moves along here? So the crisis part of it is in the rearview mirror, the existential crisis. We're not going to be able to meet payroll We're not going to be able to pay our bills. We thought we had $5 million in the bank. We only have $250,000 in the bank kind of crises that lasted most of that weekend and caused many sleepless nights for a lot of founders, not only of startups, but for businesses of all sizes. That kind of is in the rearview mirror. And everyone has the expectation of whether they bank with SVB or another non-money center bank that their deposits are good and their banking relationship solid, even on the ability to use their debt. What they're seeing going forward, though, is, hey, it's going to be a lot harder to get debt. So you shouldn't rely on debt, especially if you're a money-losing company. The buy box for the banks, and it's always been so in the money center banks because they're much more restrictive and therefore, as always, just like the old commercials, much more conservative wearing you know, gray suits and white shirts and red ties, almost uh, caricatures of themselves, they're not lending. So you, you have to assume that if you had assumptions around your ability to access debt, that gone away if you're most companies, especially companies in the private market. As Jamie Dimon said, a lot of people have forecasted, this is just another kind of black swan event that's happening, which could symbolize that the economy is on, on not as strong footing as you'd guess. And People are unsure, therefore, what happens next. And I think that's the part of the conversation you guys are talking about. So if you're a startup looking for debt financing, you've got to reconsider your cash flow and how you're spending, et cetera. But I wonder on the other side of things, too, on the back end, has it changed how they're managing the money that they have? It feels like there was this awakening in Silicon Valley and tech and that you shouldn't just put your money, in many cases, millions of dollars in seed money or fundraising in a bank account where it's earning 0.01% interest. There is a startup, Zamp Finance. It's a new startup that just got $20 million in funding. It's not changing the world. It's showing companies how to manage their treasury investment. To me, it just seemed like hilarious that this is now the companies, the innovative companies coming out of the valley for boring stuff like treasuries. I think a couple of weeks ago, your team put out like an open source document about this very issue here. And it's interesting to Deirdre's point is that there's companies that are raising VC capital to capitalize on this moment when, again, this is nothing, it's not brain surgery by any means. And you made this point though, it's a lot of these companies when you're early stage, they don't have these in-house capabilities though. It's not like they have a CFO yet who's had this experience. I think there's a lot of companies I've invested in that the CEO CEO is probably the only person that's opened a bank account, and he did when he was 13 for his paper route money, and that's the only banking relationship they've had, maybe a Robinhood account. So how do you think about something as complex as Treasury? That's why everyone's throwing their hands in the air, and now, as usual, everyone's overreacting to you have to have a very sophisticated Treasury mechanism. Basically, what the first Mark White paper said was, that, hey, you should diversify your bank accounts. If you have $2.5 million, 10, 10 banks that each have two hundred fifty. dollars You should be thoughtful about some diversification. You should include a money center bank. And if you have a lot of excess cash, you should buy treasuries in your own name so you could always access and sell them. So that's the basics. I think companies are moving towards that. Obviously, this was a shock to the system and everyone was worried for a second, but people are moving towards them. But to Deirdre's point, when people thought the equity capital isn't free anymore 18 months ago, we got to tighten our belts. This is causing another tightening of the belt of, hey, we just feel like there's risk in the system. The venture debt we were relying on might not be there. The equity capital which we thought was going to be free and easy 18 months ago is not going to be there. We have to go back to basics and manage cash through the best way to finance a business is through selling shit to customers. We got to talk about valuations here because I think that, again, a lot of this has to do with the fact in the private markets, a lot of these companies who are cutting costs, and this was a shot across the bow, as Rick just mentioned, they realize the fact that there's going to come a time in the not so distant future where they're going to have to raise capital. And if you're losing money, you want to get to a place where at least you're going to 
be able to articulate how you're going to lose less money on your path to profitability, especially when you have public markets that have been really unforgiving about this. And I thought this story and the information, and this is a sector that you follow very closely on TechCheck, in reversal, Instacart hikes its valuation 18%. So at its lows last year, I think the valuation was down 70%, which was in line with many of its public market comps from their highs in 2021 to their lows last year. And it's interesting, like, what's some of the commentary that you hear? Rick, obviously, you and I, over the last few months, have talked about how VC firms take marks, how they work with their portfolio companies to think about valuations. But when you see that sort of number, D, that basically is in line with what the NASDAQ was up in Q1, does it seem fishy to you? It seems silly. It seems ridiculous that this is a company that has missed its IPO window. And if you have to readjust your valuation internally as often as Instacart has, you probably should have just gone public, bit the bullet, and let your employees see how you trade. I've never seen anything like this. A company do this internally. Like when they did it the first time, it was like, okay, cool. Like, I guess they're paying attention to what the public markets are doing and they need to now go out and hire and offer their employees options in a different way. But at this point, how many times have they done it in the last year or year and a half? I think at least four or five times. Just go public, do a direct listing, do whatever you got to do to appease your workforce because you're doing it anyways, right? When you mark yourself up as much as the NASDAQ in the first quarter. I don't know, Rick, you're closer to it and you work with these companies, but have you ever seen a company have to do this? so often? No, most companies adjust their 409A, which is the price where they often issue options or even issue restricted stock. So it's how you pay your employees in equity. They issue that once a year. And obviously you could do it more frequently if there is a dramatic adjustment similar to what they saw their peer set do of the door dashes of the world a year ago. But that should have been an adjustment they made that we all thought was thoughtful when they cut their price to reflect the market. But now it's probably a little bit too smart by half. It's interesting who their CFO is, by the way. Nick Gianni, he was on the investment banking team for Goldman, right, Rick? So yes, it's, it's- he ran... Yes, he ran the internet for Goldman for years. The transparency drive is really good, but like also what is he waiting for, right? He knows this game. He knows how to IPO. And if you're going to do a direct listing, I just wonder what the calculus is there. They're supposed to be profitable too. I think they're waiting for to see if there's a market. From what I've heard for companies, some companies have done testing the waters. Some companies have done even a pre-test in the waters, meetings with analysts on the buy side. It doesn't seem there's much appetite for any company to go public anytime soon. Then do a direct listing. You don't need to raise money. But you'd still need someone to buy your stock. Yeah, but the irony is like a lot of these public comps is I'm looking at my fax set machine here and I see some of these names that are up 20, 30, 40%. And you talk about windows and I and listen, the traditional IPO window, Rick, you've taken plenty of companies public. This is a 12 to 24 month process. A lot of companies, Deirdre, to your point, started this process in 2021 right after a very uncertain 2020 during the pandemic, thinking that, okay, it can't just be all these SPACs that are coming to market here, but they had to shelve them once the bear market started in 2022. And it really is interesting when you look at some of the data year over year, like the IPOs are down 90 some percent. There's still some companies going public via SPAC. I think in Q1, maybe there was like- Yeah, there was a couple weird ones, but there's been no legitimate IPO. They, they count Bausch and Lam. They count some of these corporate spinoffs. There's not been a traditional growth technology IPO in over a year. Yeah. And I guess the one thing I'd say about the public markets here, and we started this conversation about it, if we were really not to go back and retest the October lows in this S&P or the January lows and the NASDAQ, and it was able to stabilize at some point, like lower, but still up on the year. And if you look at a company like an Airbnb, which still has a $75 billion market cap and it's up 31% of the year, or a DoorDash that has a $25 billion market cap that's up again, 30 plus percent on the year, it would be setting the stage for the back half of 2023 to just be gangbusters because there's going to be so much, not just like to Rick's point, you need demand, right? So like you need some investors, both institutional and retail that are interested in these stories. The problem is these stories have been around a long time. We've been reporting them. Debo, think about how much time you spend talking about on CNBC, these private companies. I think a lot of investors might actually have a bit of fatigue with them, especially if they're not profitable, because that's one of the hardest hit spots of this last 
couple of years. Especially the gig economy where Instacart operates has been one of the most disappointing IPO stories of the last few years, Uber and Lyft so far from those IPO prices. What are you most excited about? What do you see out there as the most exciting IPOs, even as the gig economy stuff has fallen, all the COVID stuff has fallen, and even the darling of Stripe, whose star has fallen a little bit? I think it probably would have been a company like OpenAI, which won't have that chance because of Microsoft. And then you've got investors just searching for any way to play artificial intelligence, C3 AI. Yes. It doesn't really matter if it's there or not. People are just desperate for this. Yeah. Let's talk about that really quickly because I know you're just looking into it. I saw this headline this morning, and of course, it came across Twitter first. This was a short selling report from a company called Carisdale. They sent it to the auditors of C3AI. This is important. This is a company that is helmed by Tom Siebel, who is largely thought to be giant of the software industry over the last 40 years or so. And talking about just highly aggressive counting to inflate the income statement metrics in order to meet sell-side analyst estimates for revenue and certain profit metrics. And this has sent the stock down 26%. This is now a $3 billion market cap company. And it's interesting, when we talk about profitability, this company is very unprofitable, right? And they do have some reasonable sales growth, but that trading at 10 times sales, even after the stock's down 26% today. When you see these sorts of headlines, and like we've seen a bunch of this stuff now over the last couple of months. The Hindenburg report about Square sent that stock, much bigger market cap, down 20% in a straight line here. Seems like we're in this sort of market where it's like happy hunting on potential irregularities right now. The words you're looking for are hypey and FOMO-y, I think, yeah. Dan. <laughs> it's easy pickings. And even though C3AI is down 25% right now, as I'm looking at it on the back of this report, still up 124% year to date. This is a company that has just rode the wave of AI hype because its ticker symbol is AI on the New York Stock Exchange with very little there. We've interviewed Tom Siebel on Tech Check numerous times over the last few years, looked at its financials, doesn't have that many customers. It does look more like a sort of lower margin consulting business, their biggest customer, Baker Hughes. It's also a little messy because I remember maybe a year ago, they transitioned from a subscription-based model to a consumption-based model because that was all the rage. So it's hard to get a good read, even if there's nothing really untoward there. Easy picking for a short seller to come in and say, it's not all that it's cracked up to be because it's more than doubled this year. People are looking for reasons to be bearish and not bullish. They're looking for reasons not to believe. And this plays right into the short sellers and plays into companies that are more hype than reality, more sizzle than steak. Let's talk about sizzle here. This is a huge deal that was announced on Monday. This is Ari Emanuel's Endeavor, which owns UFC. They agreed to a merger with WWE. It's going to be run by a new publicly traded entity operated by Endeavor. Ari is going to be the CEO of that company. It's valuing WWE at $9.3 billion. It's interesting to note that stock was basically trading at an all-time high into this this deal. And then Endeavor with a 12 billion or so enterprise value, you get like a 21 and a half billion enterprise value. Rick, you were an early investor in DraftKings. I think you have a good sense for some of this kind of sport related content. When you see a headline like this and everything that we thought we knew about a company like Endeavor, but this is a big deal. This is a big deal. There's a couple different things going on there. So obviously, Endeavor was an agency that was trying to get into assets, and they had PBR, they had UFC, they were trying to buy more assets and events, so they just weren't spending their time and money driving financials on services brokerage revenue. But UFC is a great asset. WWE is a classic great asset for if they've been doing WrestleManias forever. And the most important thing, and whether that's Major League Baseball or the NFL or hockey for Deirdre or wrestling, it's that these are events, and there is less appointment television now than ever, and you need to have events if you're going to drive eyeballs and you're going to drive excitement. And so that's why sports media rights continue to skyrocket, sports franchise values continue to skyrocket, and anything, even that ecosystem, including ultimate fighting and professional wrestling, are all part of that. Here's a stat that I thought was really interesting. Since 2010, total annual TV rights for sports and major conferences, that has increased about 170%. So decent return 
underperform the S&P, for example. But when you look at it going forward, there's the big tech factor, which is why it comes back to technology and what Apple and Google and Amazon, how much they're buying sports rights for. It's causing a lot of inflation. And if you think that they're going to continue to put that money to use, and by all indications, it seems like they are going to continue to be interested in streaming live sports, there's still more upside. And the UFC deal is up again soon. So if it increases by more than 100%, 150%, who knows how high it can get. Now it's college sports rights that are fetching the biggest increases. Then maybe it makes sense. And what I think is interesting interesting about this deal is that the new company, ticker TKO, I don't think we know what it's called yet. That's a way for retail investors to get a piece of this, to get a piece of the sports rights investment. And sports investments has typically been reserved for the billionaires buying teams for billions of yeah, dollars. Yeah, that, that's a great point. You know, what's interesting. I went to, I'm not really into wrestling. I'm not into boxing, although you and I went to a boxing match yeah. a few months ago, but, but I went to a UFC fight at the LA Forum. This was in February. And I got to tell you, I couldn't think of two very, I get it, big men in the ring, like flopping each other around. It's both UFC and WWE, but they are two very different products. The WWE, we all know it's fake. It's entertainment. There's no blood on the mat there or anything like that. The UFC, in between every match, they are literally mopping off blood off of the mat. And so to me, like, I just think they're two very different products. I'm sure they're going to figure out lots of synergies from like, a marketing standpoint. My guess is a very similar demo. Maybe, but I don't know. Like, if you're going to SoFi Stadium the other day to see, like, WrestleMania 50, you know what you're getting there. Like, no one, there's no illusions that this is not anything other than just pure entertainment. When you go to the dingy LA Forum and you're at this USC cage match and there are people, like, pounding each other's faces in to the point where there's blood coming out of them, to me, they just seem very different products. These sorts of properties had only been reserved for the mega rich, the billionaires. One more note on this that I think was really interesting. I don't know if you saw it, probably didn't see it this morning, but Sixth Street Partner, right? Big private equity firm that's been doing a lot of the debt financing. They just bought a women's soccer team here in San Francisco. And that is because they believe that this is an undervalued asset class, particularly women's sports, right? Which has enormous growth and enormous viewership, but has not attracted the kind of dollars as men's sports. And that is the whole thesis behind Sixth Street, which has a number of investments across real estate and venture, et cetera, et cetera. They're making a bet on sports. And I think that is a sign of the times for alternative investments and where you think that you can earn yield going forward. All right, people. Great conversation. I appreciate Deidre. You coming by again to OK Computer and obviously Rick Heisman of First Mark Capital. Thanks a lot for being here and everyone stick around. I had a great conversation with Kai C from Structural Capital on the private debt disruption. Hey listeners, it's Dan here. I want to tell you about a company that I'm really excited about. It's called Current. It's a fintech company that's completely disrupting traditional banking. I'm a new Current customer. It's already helping me and my entire family manage our finances, all from one easy to use app. So try Current for yourself and get the app by going to current.com slash okay. That's current.com slash okay. Current is a financial technology company, not a bank. Banking services provided by Choice Financial Group, member FDIC, and Cross River Bank, member FDIC. Welcome back to OK Computer. I am here with Kai C. He is the co-founder and managing partner of Structural Capital. He's also informed me that he is a listener of the Fine Podcast. Avid listener. Kai, thank you for being here in studio. We appreciate it. Now you're out on the West Coast and you're actually in town this week for, tell it to me. The Venture Debt Conference, first of its kind. Venture Debt, okay. So this is something that is really interesting that you happen to be here for this conference. And this has been a topic that has been top of mind in the technology ecosystem since the failure of Silicon Valley Bank. We're gonna talk about that. We're gonna talk about why that bank was so well associated with this product that your firm has been, it sounds like a pioneer from the venture standpoint for a while, especially as like someone like me, who's not in the venture business, but knows a lot of folks here in New York and obviously on the West Coast. And it's 
equity venture, right? And so this topic is something that I think it makes sense for our audience, if you're not familiar with it, for us to get a sense for it. I'd love to hear a little bit about the mood at the conference in the wake of Silicon Valley Bank and just what you see out there, whether this product is impaired going forward, is Silicon Valley Bank going away? Is that great for firms like yours? But let's take one step back here. How did structural capital come into existence? How did you become focused on venture debt? And how do you think it's differentiated from all the other venture firms out there and the kind of the way that you guys are offering capital to companies? I got to Silicon Valley in, in 2000, July 2000. A month later, the internet bubble bursted. I was at a venture capital firm, a first-time fund, and I saw the wreckage, right? I was there, NASDAQ at the peak, went down to 1,100, 80% drop. What I observed was that the lenders, if they knew what they were doing to these companies, and there weren't that many, but there were a few, if they knew what they were doing, they came out unscathed. They came out generating 15% debt returns, plus some upside, even as the market was melting down on the equity side. And I had a, an equity and debt background from the mid nineties with the folk, firms like BNP Paribas, et cetera. And so I ended up getting recruited to launch a firm called Triple Point, which is now one of the bigger players in the space. So I was the first hired investment professional there. And what was different about that was that most people that come into this space on the debt side, they come from a commercial banking perspective. Mm -hmm. I came from a VC perspective and having been part of startups in the past. So you come at it from a different angle. You understand how these companies are built. You understand how they're funded. You understand the value of the businesses. And at the end of the day, we built that firm up to 40 people, a very different thesis from what we do today, but a successful firm. And then I ended up starting Structural because what I saw were early cracks in the ecosystem that affected a lot of these other lenders because one, they were either over-levered or two, they were lending purely on the backs of the sponsor name and how fresh the equity was. But when you go through 2009 and 2001 and you come out the other side and you say, the reason we got out of some of these deals while the equity did not was because you had the ability to work out these companies on occasion because you had the skills and the background to do it. You didn't just rely on the equity sponsors to continue funding the companies because when they don't, what happens? And that's where we started Structural with the viewpoint of we have real skills. The senior team and I, we've all been there and started companies, been on the venture side, been on the debt side. And we've built a firm now in our fourth fund, about a billion under AUM in total. And we're actually extremely well positioned because of what's happened in the marketplace where SVB which was our largest competitor, we'd win and we'd lose our share of deals to them, typically because their covenants and, and their lending standards were so loose and they were giving away free money for so many years, as well as other firms, that now the market is coming to us. And so it's an incredible tailwind. And as we built this firm over nine years, we've had our share of really big wins and we've had very few troubled situations. And when we have had trouble, we've been able to get out of it because of the skills of the team and being able to manage through situations that aren't going right. So it's interesting, from an equity VC perspective, it seemed that they had a tremendous tailwind for basically since the dot-com bust of really low interest rates. We had interest rates come down dramatically in the recession period that followed the dot-com bust. We had the same situation during the financial crisis here. And so if you think of just the size of venture capital from 20 some years ago to where it was during the financial crisis to where it is right now, right now it just dwarfs, right? Like, like it just everything else every period, a large part of that was equity financing. Give us like a sense of what the venture debt financing component is to the whole and how that's grown over the last 20 years or so. Yeah, I'd say there's a couple simple analogies. Back 20 years ago, you might see two companies out of 10 use some sort of venture debt financing. Mm -hmm. When I think about venture debt, there's a couple flavors, right? There's a basic bank financing that you finance your AR or your inventory. That's what banks do well, and that's what they're supposed to do. And you've get into the more nitty gritty term loans where you're giving capital to companies for growth and to achieve certain milestones. And that's a little bit smaller part of the equation, but the overall industry is about 30 to 35 billion of capital per year. And SVB was roughly 50% of that between the AR financing, working capital stuff to term loans. And so now that whole side of the equation is basically evaporated and it's quite an open field as a result. We'll see what First Citizens does with their loan book and what have you, but it's become a wide open field. And it's important to the venture ecosystem because 
it's about 10 to 15% of venture dollars, what venture debt is. So it allows companies generally, whether they're earlier stage or later stage, which is where we focus to get an extra six, nine, 12 months, 18 months of additional runway. Our perspective has always been, we're financing these companies to profitability. And if an equity round happens along the way, that's great. But we're looking at the companies that we think can get profitable or get acquired and or some combination without necessarily relying on three more rounds of equity because that's what most other lenders do in our space. So we are uniquely positioned from that perspective because we've always said for the last seven years, when the downturn happens, we're going to be there and other lenders may have their own challenges as we've seen with SVB. And that loan book itself was starting to deteriorate and it wasn't quite apparent to everyone, but it was apparent to people in our industry that give it a couple more quarters and that loan book was going to have some challenges. Did you feel back during the COVID period, okay, like it must have been a shot across the bow. One of the reasons why the Federal Reserve moved before any fiscal stimulus on the monetary front, because the lessons that they learned about the financial crisis, they couldn't have a credit freeze up situation. I'm curious, what was it like taking a step back a couple years, two, three years now during that period? Because that must have been a pretty scary place to be on the debt side. Even, yeah, even as a lender, that was scary. And we saw a few companies lose complete visibility into their business for at least a quarter, right? And if you were in, for example, healthcare, we saw companies, we're not in healthcare, but we have friends that like literally saw revenue drop 95% from one quarter to the next. And luckily for us, we skipped a lot of these businesses and a lot of the travel and retail things that had challenges. But even some of our enterprise companies, they lost visibility. Like they could not tell you what the predictability of the next quarter was going to look like. And that, that was new for us. So in some of those situations, we were able to, I wouldn't say get aggressive, but we made our presence felt with the investors and with the company to make sure the changes were made to adjust to multiple scenarios. And that's actually very important. And that's actually very relevant today because post COVID, when things opened up, you obviously had a massive stimulus. And some of our companies had the literally the best years of their like 10, 15 year track records right afterwards. And we had some great exits as a result of that, beauty counter being one, which had an incredible year and was sold to Carlisle for a billion dollars in July of 2021. And we exited both the debt and the warrants and it was a great outcome for us. Yeah. So flash forward now to this period we are right now where over the last year we've seen Fed funds rate go up almost 5%, which is just extraordinary in, in that amount of time. And so where are you right now with that mindset compared to, let's say, three years ago in the throes of the COVID thing? Because you've been in this business for 25 plus years here. Something was going to break here. And then let's get to those kind of lending standards at SVB. <laughs> when we looked at the current situation now, we're completely open for business. And a lot of it for us is we have a bunch of untapped capital that we have from our LPs. And they're looking at this and saying, you have floating rate loans. Interest rates are 12, 13, 14%. You get more covenants now than you ever have before. You're senior secured. You have great protections. You can get upside into warrants that have down round protection mm -hmm. in terms of our structures. And so what's not to like? And so if your LTV calculation in terms of how you're lending to a company hasn't changed and, is, and you're seeing better companies more scale than you did ever before, what is not to like if you're in that senior secured position? Because mm -hmm. when you look back to 2001 and 2008, in my track record way back when, even if companies have zero equity value at the end, meaning they exited after 100 million of investment, they exited at 30 million to pay off the lender and the lender's fees, and the equity got very little, that happens. This is what happens in that type of economy. Yeah. But the lenders usually come out on top. And so it's like an interesting dichotomy where in the bull market, we always trail what equity returns, obviously, even though we have our warrant hits, but in a sideways or down economy, we actually outperform venture. We're gonna still generate 15, 20% IRRs. We just had a loan payoff yesterday. We're very happy about that. And it was another click 18%, 20% IRR debt, keep the warrants. So we constantly are churning our debt, churning our companies. And so that short life cycle of our loans really helps us protect ourselves against a longer protracted downturn. So the average life cycle of those loans is what? It's a, it typically three to four years, but the payoff actually is 18 to 24 months, yeah. the actual duration. So you're short duration, you're getting liquidity payments the whole way, and you're financing to an event or growth in the business. Yeah. Or, and you're protecting your downside so that you're not lending more than 
15, 20% of the value of the business. So you were just at this conference this week, and I suppose with Silicon Valley Bank out of the picture now, the terms in which you guys can set, they're just getting better here. Are you seeing some other players now come into the business? And how do you think about competition? Obviously, there's a lot of firms that don't look like yours, that bigger financial institutions who play in this too, that aren't exactly banks either. I'm just curious, does this feel about as disruptive of a time since you've been in the venture debt business over the last 20 years? Absolutely, because Silicon Valley Bank is the first, but not the only, yeah. that's going to have a lot of challenges. Banking regulations are going to come in. All these loans on these other venture banks' balance sheets may be viewed differently in the next few months. The underwriting packages that they are looking at are going to be viewed differently as well. And then you see on the high end, the large-scale asset managers are coming in. In fact, we actually helped one of them come in into the business mm -hmm. of our education of them. But I think for the most part, the challenge with firms with too much capital, frankly, is that you don't really want to be lending to $50 million loans, $100 million loans to companies that are still burning cash mm -hmm. for 18 months when your, your core business is dealing with companies with $100 million of EBITDA. Like you look at this and say, this is a nice business, but is it really going to move the needle for mm -hmm. you? So the big firms will see that later when they come into the space and they have a couple workouts and they spend all this time dealing with the workouts because mm -hmm. eventually you will. They're going to say, why am I even in this business? Mm -hmm. We've seen that before. Mm -hmm. We've seen big firms come in. We call them tourists. They come in and then five years later, they say, you know what? This isn't worth the time. Yeah. So a, a focused firm that spends all their time on the assets on the, in the space and that can maximize its returns is best suited for this. So what's a win-win scenario for a company firm like Structural Capital? You already mentioned that you're later stage. You just gave the example of a company burning cash and competing with the profitable companies, not a great setup. What, what's like an ideal scenario when you're like, let's say you have a handful of, of decks in front of you, companies that maybe it's a banker showed you or something like that. What is an ideal scenario? What are some of the characteristics that you look for that, that is just where you think that you can make a strong case is not only it's going to be a great loan for you, but it's also going to work out well for the company our whole product strategy is we have a thematic element to it so we do look at growth areas and there's always growth in some areas and other areas may things may be stagnant for a while how we think about the business is we want to provide the capital that either supplements equity or in some cases actually you don't need equity because the dilution element is so strong mm -hmm. that our capital makes more sense and those companies for us are typically businesses that are series d series c they've mm -hmm. got if it's a consumer brand 100 million of revenue but they're not profitable yet, or they're barely profitable, but there's no access to capital for growth because equity doesn't want to necessarily fund it because they're not going to see a 10x return on it. So at the juncture where equity returns start to slide for these companies, but they're real businesses with mature management teams, and ideally for us, management teams that we've worked with before, whether it's a CFO or CEO, boards that we've worked with before, and all that element, plus the fact that these businesses are stable and growing, mm -hmm is excellent. So when you think about what fits for us, when companies get out of, and this is actually very an important point today, when companies get out of that venture growth stage, we're not growing 50, 100% anymore, which is most tech companies, mm -hmm. and they're down to that 20 to 30% growth, that actually fits for us. Because if you can control your unit economics and you've got a really good set of levers that you can get to profitability and manage, that's when it actually fits really well for us. And it doesn't fit well for equity because you don't have the multiple expansion that you need to justify your next equity round. For us, if we can get these companies profitable and continue to scale, we know our debt's gonna be good. And often, in many cases, we're actually looking and helping to find the buyer of these businesses. And so that actually works out well for both us. The dilution for the management team is minimized and we get upside in the form of warrants. And so we get both a great debt return, but also some of the ups. And if honestly, if things ever go sideways and companies need to be recapped, we're protected. So we actually can do better in many situations than the equity because we're protected from the recap. By the way, to our listener here, Kai came intro to me through Rick Heitzman, who you guys all know is a co-host of this fine podcast here. And it's interesting. I'm just curious, like when you're in, in the process of raising capital, okay, and you're speaking to LPs or prospective LPs, are they the same sort of LPs investing in, let's say, a growth venture fund that's an equity-based fund? And how do you differentiate the stories? Or they say similar stories because you're looking at a lot of the same opportunities. You're just approaching it with different return perspectives. That's exactly right. So when we think about, um, and this is an evolution, and our asset class has been, I would say, somewhat non-institutional for decades. And we're one of the few groups, along with someone like an SVB Capital, which mm -hmm. you know is having its own challenges, 
institutionalize the business from an LP perspective. And you've got firms out there that have gone public and raised capital from 401k and mom and pop investors. But for us, we focus and we've grown our firm to focus on pensions, endowments, insurance companies, et cetera. And we've done a great job as we've grown the firm from fund one to fund four. I was at the conference and we, it was a panel on fundraising. Mm -hmm. So we're wrapping up our fourth fund. But what's interesting is we migrated from high net worths in fund one to family offices in fund two to institutions in fund three, including pensions in fund four. We've got escape velocity out of the emerging manager space. So we're a real firm with a dozen people. And really then the dilemma that investors have and what we saw in the beginning was, are we equity or are we dead? Right? Which bucket do you fit us in? And that's the question of the day, even at the conference. And we smartly positioned ourselves away from equity and into debt, but you need a track record to be able to do that. I have to say, I've been in the business for 10 years and here are my returns. And at some point people believe it because you show the returns. So our second fund is high mid-teens. First fund is solid. Fund three, we think will be high mid-teens. And so it's a solid set of returns you have to prove over time. And so now we believe there's an asset allocation to what's called venture debt. But the reality is it's a broader part of niche credit. Right? It's another product within an asset manager's portfolio. I want to have 2% in this and 5% in distressed or this into opportunistic credit or other forms of credit. So we are a part of that allocation now. Yeah. Are there some industries that work better for this sort of financing than others that are like traditionally still obviously private, but in the venture ecosystem? Are there some industries you just stay away from altogether because either from experience, it just doesn't work or just the economics of the business just don't make a lot of sense for this sort of product? One, you have to have a good knowledge base. So we stay away from highly regulated things, biotech, phase one, phase two type situations. We, we don't know that area, so we stay away from it. But generally areas that there's a binary risk, someone comes in, government says, hey, you can't do this anymore. We try to stay away from, we have pretty strong mandated ESG type of policy where we can't do the typical things, gambling, guns, mm -hmm. those types of elements. But there are areas that we do think are interesting. We've been very successful in consumer and health and wellness. We've done a pretty good job in climate, clean tech type businesses. Mm -hmm. And enterprise SaaS is core area that most people in the lending side kind of cater to because of predictability of the revenue. But we look at ourselves as a bit of generalists and we want to find the best teams, the best companies that are well run, not necessarily always backed by the top firms. We want to rely less on that future equity than others tend to rely on. So let's just say you are looking at a deal, okay? And let's say some of those earlier rounds in AB or something was led by one of those top equity firms. What's some of the pushback that you'll hear, right? If the company comes back to you as saying from their board members, some of those earlier firms, generally, what's the vibe? I'm just curious. Yeah. Vibe is you're expensive and you have covenants. Yeah. And I have term sheets that, have, that are closer in, or close enough in dollar size because we can write sizable checks. Yeah. And they're either very cov light or non-covenant, which doesn't make sense in this environment. And they're priced very cheaply because it's, there's a bank. And so boards and companies will want to choose a combination of the two, where there's uh, typically a bank debt financing or a non-bank or some combination that's more expensive, but larger dollars, mm -hmm. more flexible, has ability to scale. And they like the people that they were working with mm -hmm. versus a bank. You don't know who's actually making the decision as a credit officer who is 3,000 miles away from the relationship manager. In a firm like ours, you're dealing with the actual partners who can actually help drive decisions. And Rick knows this because I've worked with Rick a few times and actually help companies. We're often viewed as value add lender to the company because our team, we've been on boards, we've started companies, we've actually helped some of our companies exit, we've helped some of our companies find partners to buy. So we actually tend to bring value to the table and that's actually appreciated. And it's going to be more appreciated in an environment like this where we're willing to write a bigger check and others are not willing to do anything. Yeah. Let's talk about that environment before we get out of here, because again, it's been one, it's been volatile, whether you're in the public markets, private markets, credit, equity, every, almost every major risk asset for the last few years is about as volatile as, as it, they've been in our entire careers. And sometimes it's funny with the equity markets right now, we just finished Q1 of this year and we have the S&Ps up more than 5% of the year, the NASDAQ's up, the NASDAQ 100 is up nearly 20% of the year. Okay. And so think about what we just went through. We talked about the rate environment. We talked about obviously value compression in the public markets, but we've also seen that in the private markets and it became very acute. And we haven't even seen 
all the marks yet. And so we're starting to read stories about cram downs and all this sort of stuff. Where do you think we are right now? Because the public markets are saying the bear market of 2022 is over. (laughs) We discounted, right? The rate increases. Yeah. Yeah, I'm like, literally, okay. I don't think we've had the reckoning yet in the private markets. And maybe this SVB thing was like the shot across the bow that things have to get in order the way they did in the public markets over the last year and a half and what we saw in crypto and the related sort of stuff. Talk to me about how you think about private markets right now here and where are we? What stage of the game are we, you think? Yeah, I think we're in like the third inning, getting to the bottom of the third. One of the reasons why I love listening, you guys have the same experiences and you live through it like like I did. Yeah. And when you think back to 2001, because that's the scenario that we're painting internally in terms of how to think through this, all the cram downs and recaps are just starting. So I was on the VC side way back when, and we were one of the firms that would put out these tough term sheets, <laughs> 2X liquidation preference, 3X liquidation preference. But the reality is none of the boards actually want to even address it because it just requires them to rethink their own books. And so that takes a long time. And so from my perspective, if you relive that past, you're thinking there's going to be another two years of this. And we were just talking about this at the conference, like what's the plan with valuations from the LP side? What are they going to see from the venture sponsors? And I think they're starting to see them now because audited financials are coming out and people have to get third-party valuations. And then you're going to see that next year and you're going to see that the year after. But if you fast forward to what happens to these companies, and this is not all of them, there are going to be some massive winners out of all this. But the rest of the companies, then you're going to have boards dealing with recaps. Recaps become restarts. One of the fun one companies that we had, which is doing extraordinarily well, part of our thesis, mm-hmm. is a company that's been around for 20 years. They went through, I think, two zero pre-recaps. Their investors crushed twice. And the company is now $40 million revenue, recurring revenue, even a positive. But it went through just a terrible time for many years. Twice. And so you're going to see some of that. We're already hearing stories of pay-to-plays with companies that are doing well. And then we're also hearing stories and seeing stories of companies going through bankruptcy to get restarted. But there's fresh equity there. They just want to clear out all the the deadwood, right, Mm -hmm. from before. And so there's going to be massive opportunity, but you have to get through the rest of the cycle, which is going to take some time. Yeah, so putting that VC hat on that you had, the earlier stage VC hat, let's call it from 20 years ago before you got in the venture debt market, are you seeing some great opportunities that like you wish you had that other business model a little bit? Because we can all go back and look in the wake of the dot-com and the wake of the financial crisis. A lot of great entrepreneurs started some amazing companies and it's just not an area that you play in right now. Is that correct? Yeah, so we can write equity checks okay. and we do, okay. but they're small. The beauty of our businesses, we do the debt, we're senior, and then we get a right to invest equity along with warrants. Okay, We can double dip, triple dip yeah. in a way. So we do have some companies in the portfolio. We're seeing the real green shoots and saying, yeah, we want to play in the equity in the next round, or maybe we just want to come in now because the valuation is down and the company's doing really well. And so we will do some of that. And it's a question of both timing, but also your time horizon for yeah. your fund. You can't mismatch your duration of your fund either. Right, because we're Wait, mismatch fund. durations an issue. Yeah. That's a topic that I think just came into focus over the last month. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So we think there's going to be great opportunity, but again, there's going to be a lot of challenges and workouts along the way for the broader industry. And you think about how many thousands of companies were funded. How many winners are there going to be? And then the next tier of that, the good companies, but they're not great. There's hundreds of those. And then what about the rest of them? It's just going to take a long time to kind of cycle through it because the party went on for a very long time. Yeah, no doubt. Listen, I'm really glad that Rick made the intro here. This is a conversation where I learned a lot. I hope our listeners enjoyed this. And it would be fun for you to come back maybe on the next deal that you do and break down what some of the other alternatives would be for that company, how you arrived at the deal you did and how you see it playing out for not just you and your investors, but also for the company that is on the other end of it. So thanks a lot. That would be amazing. Thank you, Kai C structural gap. If you like what you heard, make sure to hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show. We also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com.